morning. This is Pastor Frank with the Lunch Break Bible Study. 20 minutes so that you can listen to this in any opportunity. 20 minutes, whether it's your time on your commute, whether you're in the gym, or whether you're on your lunch break. Today we're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 3. In the last chapter, Jesus has been confronted by critics several times. Uh, the third time, they, con- they confronted him concerning the way his disciples were behaving. They were eating uh, in the field. As they were walking along, they were picking heads of grain and eating from the field, which is legal according to Jewish law and custom. The, uh, the landowners are required to not harvest all the, all the way to the edges of their field so that travelers and, and the poor could come and, and find food there by the roadside. So that's not a problem. What's a problem is the disciples are doing that on a Sabbath. And of course, in the Mosaic Law, you're not supposed to work at all on a Sabbath. You're not supposed to gather food or any of that sort of thing. And the Pharisees confront Jesus about this. They ask him, what are your disciples doing? How come they don't follow the law? And then Jesus, rather than judge his his disciples, is what the Pharisees are hoping he's going to do, Rather than that, Jesus decides that he's going to teach the Pharisees. He tells them about King David and how King David had eaten bread that was reserved only for the priests in his time of need. And Jesus says that he is like King David. But even more, even more, Jesus continues. He kind of doubles down on this. And he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, which is a startling, startling thing to say. And now we're going to get on into chapter 3, where Jesus is going to be watched about his Sabbath observances. It says, another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus had certainly healed on the Sabbath before. He had cast out a demon on the Sabbath. But this is the healing of a physical malady. So this is going to be understood a little bit differently from casting out a demon. And no surprise that they're watching him closely because they've been confronting him and conflicted with him for basically his entire ministry. But Jesus is not one to sort of hide from them. He's not afraid of them. He's not concerned about their judgment because Jesus didn't come to be judged by them. He came to redeem the people of Israel. So this is what he says. He goes to the man with the shriveled hand, and he says, stand up here in front of everybody. So he's not going to hide this. He's not going to do this in secret. So you're in the synagogue. All the the observant, the religious uh, Jews of the day were in the community, were there at the synagogue. So it's in front of everybody. Everybody's there to see this. Then Jesus turns and asks them a question. He says, which one of these things is lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. So Jesus questions the entire validity of their thoughts. He asks the question, is it right not to act on the Sabbath? See, they're asking if it's right to act on the Sabbath, and Jesus saying, how could it be right to not act? To have it within your power to help someone, to give them some sort of assistance, but then refuse to do that. Is that an evil thing or a good thing? Jesus' opinion is it's wrong to withhold your assistance from someone who can use it and claim some religious teaching told you to do that. And Jesus has no time for that. He looks around them in anger. 
right? And, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and his hand was completely healed. His hand was restored. Now, I love the way that Mark puts this, because this word that your NIV translates as stubborn hearts, this word is literally hardness of heart. Now, I don't know if Mark had this in mind, but it certainly is reminiscent of the sign that God had given the Israelites via Moses in in Exodus chapter 4. Because in in Exodus, Moses had been commanded by God, go to the Israelites and and tell them that the God of Abraham has, has sent you to rescue them. And Moses is saying, well, what if they don't believe me? And God said, well, put your hand in your cloak, and, and Moses puts his hand inside his, his clothing, and he pulls it out again, and it's, and it's white, it's, a, it's leprous, right? It's got a disease. And then Moses puts his hand in his coat again and then pulls it back out again, and, and it had been restored, just like that. Now, combine this with the words that Mark is using. He was distressed at their hardness of heart. Now, we know that phrase, too, because that is the phrase that is used to describe Pharaoh back in those days of Exodus as well, that he had hardness of heart and he would not listen to Moses and let the Israelites go. So in this one sentence, Mark is bringing to mind all of these ideas about Moses and the Exodus and the fulfillment of the Old Testament with these simple phrases, hardness of heart and restoring the man's hand. Verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. (laughs) Kill him? You know, for what? For healing people and driving out demons? No. They want to kill Jesus for blasphemy. See, they are hard of heart. They don't want to listen to Jesus. They don't want to see the evidence right in front of their eyes. They believe that they're doing a good thing, upholding the law of God, cleansing Israel of a false prophet, But these are really the vices of jealousy and pride masquerading as a virtue of holiness. So they go out and begin to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now the Herodians are the household and ruling class of King Herod, certainly no friend of Jesus at all. And certainly the Pharisees are not super interested in the Herodians because they don't believe the Herodians have a legitimate authority over them. They believe that Israel should have its own king, that a son of David, not some Idumean, should be on the throne of Israel. But there we are. Uh, They go and plot how they might kill Jesus. Verse 7, Mark has no transition. Jesus just goes. He goes with his disciples, withdrew to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all that he was doing, many came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. So you can see that not only is word about Jesus getting out into Galilee, but Judea. Galilee is sort of in the north. Judea is in the south. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is in the south as well within Judea. And then you have Idumea, which is, which is farther south, uh, regions across the Jordan, which is to the east, entire and Sidon, which is to the north. So all of the regions around Galilee are now hearing about Jesus and coming to see him. For he healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Again, Jesus has his own ministry and his own timing. 
and he's not ready to fully reveal who he is, which will come later. So then Jesus gets up on a mountainside and calls to himself those he wants, and they come to him. He, he appointed twelve, designated them apostles. Apostle is from the Greek word apostello. It means to send. So he designates them as sent ones, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have the authority to drive out demons. Remember, this is what Jesus claims his ministry is all about. It's about preaching. This is why he didn't stay in Capernaum to begin with. Uh, the people of Capernaum loved him. He had done great things there. But he says, you know, and, and he wakes up that morning and, and Simon Peter comes looking for him and says, we got to go back into town. Everybody's looking for you. And, and Jesus says, no, let's go to the surrounding places so I can preach there. That's why I've come. And now he's giving these sent ones, these apostles, the authority to drive out demons, but also the authority to preach, to speak this good news of the kingdom of God. So verse 16, Mark lists the name of the twelve. Simon, to whom he'd given the name Peter. Then you had the sons of Zebedee, James, and John. He gave them the names Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. And I don't remember if it's here in Mark's gospel, somewhere else, when Jesus goes through a town and the, and the Samaritan village doesn't want to talk to him. I think it's in Luke's gospel, where the Samaritan village doesn't want to see him because he's going to Jerusalem. And James and John want to call down thunder and lightning and fire to judge the town because they refuse Jesus and he has to rebuke them. So the sons of thunder, James and John. Andrew, if you remember, is Simon's brother. Then you have uh, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew. We saw earlier his name was Levi. He also goes by Matthew. Thomas, which you remember from John's gospel, Thomas the doubting one. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot. Uh, zealots are a particularly energetic class of people um, who believe in armed rebellion against the, against the Roman authorities, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So after he had called these disciples, these apostles, to himself, he enters a house, and again a crowd gathered. So you see here in, in Mark's gospel, all of the crowds are constantly pressing in on Jesus. He never has a moment's peace. Uh, everything is always going very, very quickly. And he and his disciples were not even able to eat, right? So they just couldn't get anything done. Now, this is something unique to Mark's gospel, and, and I love it, because his family hears about what Jesus is doing. They go to take charge of him, for he is out of his mind. They think he's crazy. And the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So you have two people coming. One is his own family saying he's something wrong with the guy. He's, he's gone off his rocker. And the other group saying that he is, he is the devil himself. Now, uh, C.S. Lewis, who you may uh, know as the, the author of uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and other assorted literature, also was a very, very competent and accomplished Christian apologist. And uh, he hints at this, at this idea in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But uh, he's basically got a thing where he talks about Jesus, and he says, Jesus gives us three options. Now, we can listen to Jesus, and we can either believe what he's saying— right, that he is the Lord of the universe. Or we can listen to Jesus and say, no, he's a, a liar. Or we can say he's a complete and total lunatic, as uh, Lewis's words were uh, 
on par with someone who says that he believes he is a poached egg, which I think is kind of a fun, a fun way to look at that. So Lewis has this idea that Jesus is either a liar or he's crazy or he's the Lord of the universe. And I don't know if this is where he was looking when he got that, but you certainly have those two, the two of the three options here kind of laid out is that you have one group that's saying he's a liar, that he's actually the devil himself. You have another group, his own family, who says, I think there's something mentally wrong with the man. Or he has his own claim, and the claim of the disciples, which is he is Lord, and the kingdom of God has come. Verse 23, so Jesus called them. Now he's talking to the teachers of the law who's saying he's a liar and saying that he is in league with Satan himself. Jesus called to them and spoke to them in parables. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom obviously can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan, right, if Satan is divided against himself, if he opposes himself, he cannot stand. His end has come. So there's two things. Certainly Jesus is addressing their accusation about this. But notice that Jesus includes twice this thing about a kingdom being divided against itself and a house to being, being divided against itself. And he's asking, how can a house do that if, if it expects to stand? And I think what Jesus is also doing here, he's not merely addressing their arguments. What he's also doing is he's giving a hint about the fate of the house of Israel. He says, if, if, if the house of Israel is divided concerning me, how can it expect to stand? Because it can't. As a matter of fact, the church now, uh, we face many, many, many difficulties, many problems uh, among ourselves. But the one thing we cannot, we cannot ever become divided on is Jesus himself. That he is everything that he claims to be. That he is Lord of the universe, the only begotten Son of the Father, the one whose sacrifice redeems the entire world, the one who took our sins onto himself, that we might live forever. The Church of Jesus Christ, despite all of her splintering and factions, will stand as long as this truth holds. But a church that does not hold to that truth cannot stand. It may stand for a time, it may stand for a long time, but in the end, in the judgment, it will not. Verse 27, Jesus continues to address the logic of the Pharisees. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Jesus in this story compares himself to a robber, um, which is kind of opposite of how Jesus normally refers to himself in his, in his parables. But that's what he's basically saying. He said, the devil is a strong man and I've come to take everything away. Of course, Satan owns nothing of himself. He, he's stolen everything that he has. But Jesus says that he's come to bind him up and then rob him of everything. Verse 28, here's the meat of it. I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now he was saying this because they said he had an evil spirit. And to claim that Jesus is in opposition to the Father that he is not from the Father and doing the Father's work, that is blasphemy against the Spirit. And that's what Jesus is really driving at when he addresses their accusation. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. 
the scene got introduced with his family, then the Pharisees, and then Jesus addresses them, Pharisees, and then the family. So this sort of A-B-B-A construction is kind of common in the Bible where you have a multi-part story. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, verse 31, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, right, because they couldn't get in. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said, hey, you know, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you, right, because they thought they needed to come and, and constrain him. Jesus then asks, again, so it's the same sort of thing. He addresses the criticism, but then uses that as a teaching moment. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Another shocking statement. Another incredibly shocking statement because Jesus is, in essence, redefining family. The the idea of family is a core concept in any culture, right? Any culture, the idea of, of family, who is family and what does family mean, that is a big, big concept. And you can see in our own uh, United States context how the discussion of family and what does it mean to be family, you can see why this causes so much consternation. But the question of what a family is is at the heart of what a culture believes and what it believes about itself and believes about the people within it. But this is especially true for a family that traces itself back to Abraham who defines its entire nation, its entire culture as family. He opens that special relationship up to everyone who believes, to everyone who looks and says, no, you're not lying. No, you're not crazy. You are who you claim to be. Jesus says, this is the family. This is Israel. These are my people. And that's where we're going to end today. We've made it through chapter 3. I think this episode, I've got to edit it yet. This episode might have run another uh, minute long. Maybe I should call it 21 minutes. I'm not sure. But uh, hey, thanks to everybody that's been giving me positive reviews and sharing these podcasts. It's really encouraging to me when I when I open up the Anchor app on my phone and, and see that uh, my latest episode has, has gotten more, more listens. And um, another thing that apparently is helpful is that if you Uh, Listen to this on iTunes. You go to iTunes and give a five-star review. I am going to start reading some of the positive feedback I've been getting from people because I think it's just kind of a nice way to say thank you. And this one comes from Andrew. Uh, This is on iTunes. He gave me a five-star review. Andrew says that Frank has a great wisdom and passion for teaching the gospel, download, and a joy. Thanks, Andrew, for for that positive feedback. That that makes me feel real good. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. Riorjo or Riorjo. Uh, Pastor Frank, I'm so glad you felt called to add podcasts to your ministry. A year ago, I went looking for a podcast with strong biblical teaching rooted in gospel truths, and I couldn't find it. Now I can stop looking. Thank you for giving of your time in this way. Um, So Andrew and Riorjo, thank you so much for those kind words. Uh, I really appreciate them. The best thing you can do, uh, like I said, is to put a five-star review up on iTunes. Thank you to the uh, folks who have already done that. I've got nine of those there on iTunes right now. Also, if you see the post on Facebook, uh, share that. Maybe put a drop a comment on it. The way that Facebook, I think the way their, their computer program works is the more comments and shares and likes that a post have the, has, the more likely people are to see it on their feed. So if you like or you share or you, or you comment, that's going to make it more likely that your friends are going to see that 
on Facebook when, when they're scrolling through their feeds as well. Comments are always appreciated. All those things are very helpful for me to sort of get this podcast off the ground. Um, really, really appreciating the positive feedback, and, and, and I really appreciate you guys listening in. I'm Pastor Frank. Have a blessed day.